Section 8 of The Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Radio Planet by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 8 But Why Radio? Three fields of magic were open to him rifle fire, aviation, and radio. The opportunity for building a workable airplane among people who knew no metal arts was obviously slight. To make a radio set should be possible, if he could find certain minerals and other natural products, which ought to be available in almost any country. But easiest of all would be to extract iron from the ore which he had observed on his journey across the mountains, forge rifle-barrels and simple breech-mechanisms, and make gunpowder and bullets. Therefore it is plain why he did not attempt to build airships, but it is hard to see why he did not make firearms rather than a radio-set. Firearms would have enabled him to equip the Verkings for battle against the Formians, whereas radio could serve no useful purpose at the moment. Yet he took up radio. I think the explanation lies in two facts. First, he wanted above all to get in touch with his home in Cupia, find out the status of affairs there, and give courage to his wife and his supporters, if any of them remained. And secondly, he was primarily a radio engineer, and so his thoughts naturally turned to radio and minimized its difficulties. There would be plenty of time to arm the Verkings after he found out how affairs stood at home. So he broached to Judd his project of constructing a radio set, which would necessitate extended journeys in search of materials. But the Verking noble was singularly uninterested. "'I know you can spin interesting yarns,' he said, "'but I do not know whether you can do magic. Why, then, should I deprive myself of the pleasure of listening to your stories, just for the sake of letting you amuse yourself in a probably impossible pursuit?' First, you must convince me that you are a magician. Then, perhaps, I may consent to your attempting further magic." "'Very well,' the Earthman replied. "'Tomorrow evening I shall display to you some of the more simple examples of my art. Meanwhile I shall spend my time concocting mystic spells in preparation for the occasion.' Then he bowed and withdrew thanking his lucky stars that he had learned a few tricks of sleight of hand while at college. Miles now recalled several of these, and devoted most of the succeeding day to preparing a few simple bits of apparatus. Then he practiced his tricks before the golden-furred quiven to her complete mystification. That evening he went again to the quarters of Judd the excuse-maker. The same group was there as on the evening before and, in addition, several other Verking men and their wives. After an introduction by his host, the Earthman started in. First he did, in rapid succession, some simple variations of sleight of hand. He had wanted to perform the well-known restoration of the cut handkerchief, but, unfortunately, the Verkings possessed neither handkerchiefs nor scissors, and he was forced to improvise a variant. Taking a piece of stick, which he had brought with him for a wand, he stuffed a small part of one of the gaudy hangings through his closed left fist between the thumb and forefinger, 
so that it projected in a gathered-up point about two inches beyond his hand. Then, pulling the curtain over toward one of the stone open-wick lamps which illuminated the chamber, he completely burned off the projecting bit of cloth. Evidently this was one of Judd's choicest tapestries, for the noble emitted a howl of grief and rage, and leaped from his divan, scattering the reclining beauties in both directions. If he had interfered in time to prevent the burning, it would have spoiled the trick. But as it was, the confusion caused by his onrush played right into Cabot's hands. Miles stepped back in apparent terror as Judd seized his precious curtain and hunted for the scorched hole. But there was no hole there. The curtain was intact. Judd looked up sheepishly into the triumphant face of his protégé, who thereupon stated, you did not need to worry about your property in the hands of a true magician." "'Oh, I was not afraid,' Judd the excuse-maker explained. "'I merely pretended fear, so as to try and confuse your magic.' "'Please do not do it again,' the earthman sternly admonished him. The Verking noble seated himself again. His guests were enthralled. This was a fitting climax for the evening. The amateur conjurer bowed low and withdrew. Quiven was waiting for him at his house, and reported that someone had torn a small piece out of one of the tapestries. Several days later she found the piece, but alas there was a hole burnt in the middle of it. The next morning Judd the excuse-maker called at the quarters of Cabot the Furless. It was a rare honor, so Cabot answered the door in person. Judd expressed his conviction that the Earthman really was a magician after all, and that, therefore, he, Judd, was agreeable to an expedition to the mountains in search of rocks whose mystical properties would enable the performing of even greater magic. It was soon arranged that Cabot, with a bodyguard of some twenty Verking soldiers and a low-ranking officer, should start on the morrow. Miles was thrilled. Now he was getting somewhere at last. The rest of the day he devoted to preparing a list of the materials for which he must hunt. To make a radio-telephone sending and receiving set, he would need dielectrics, copper wire, batteries, tubes, and iron. For dielectrics, wood and mica would suffice. Wood was common, and the Verkings were skilled carpenters and carvers. For fine insulation, mica would be ideal and this mineral ought to be procurable somewhere in the mountains, whose general nature he had observed to be granitic. To make copper wire he would need copper ore, preferably pyrites, quartz, limestone, and fuel. The necessary furnaces he would build of brick. Anyone can bake clay into bricks. For cement, Miles finally hit upon using a baked and ground mixture of limestone and clay both of which ingredients he would have at hand for other purposes. The Verkings used charcoal in their open fires, and this would do nicely for his fuel. For the wire-drawing dyes he would use steel. This disposed of the copper questions, and brought him to a consideration of iron, which he would need at various places in his apparatus. This metal could be smelted from the slag of the copper furnaces, using an appropriate flux, such as floor-spar. Cabot next turned his attention to his power source. For some time he debated the question of whether or not to build a dynamo. 
But how about the storage batteries? He wasn't quite sure how to find or make the necessary red and yellow lead salts for the packing plates. Thus by the time that Cabot reached the contemplation of having either to find or make his lead compounds, he decided to turn his attention to primary cells. The jars could be made of pottery, or from the glass which was going to be necessary for his tubes anyhow. Charcoal would furnish the carbon elements. Zinc could easily be distilled from zinc spar, if that particular form of ore were found. Cell ammoniac solution could be made from the ammonia of animal refuse, common salt and sulfuric acid. Mass production of zinc-carbon batteries should thus be an easy matter, and they would serve perfectly satisfactorily, as neither compactness nor portability was a requisite. The radio man accordingly abandoned the idea of dynamos and accumulators in favor of large quantities of wet cells. The tubes, it appeared to Miles, would present the greatest problem. Platinum for the filaments, grids, and plates had been fairly common in nugget form in Cupia, and so presumably could be found in Fergingia. Glass, of course, would be easy to make. Alcohol for laboratory burners could be distilled from decayed fruit. But the chief stumbling-block was how to exhaust the air from his tubes, and how to secure magnesium to use in completing the vacuum. These matters he would have to leave to the future in the hope of a chance idea. For the present there were enough elements to be collected so that he could be kept busy for a great many days. Accordingly he copied off the following two lists. Materials readily available. Wood, wood ashes, charcoal, clay, common salt, white sand, animal refuse, decayed fruit. Materials to hunt for. Mica, copper ore, quartz, limestone, fluorspar, galena, zinc ore, platinum, chalk, magnesium. But that afternoon all his plans were disrupted by a message reading, To the furless one, you are directed to appear for my amusement at my palace tomorrow. Fail not. Theof the Grim. That puts an end to my trip, he said to Quiven. How do you suppose His Majesty got wind that I am a conjurer?" "'One of the guests at the show last night must have told him,' she replied. But something in her tone of voice caused Miles to look at her intently, and something in her expression caused him to say, "'You know more than you tell. Out with it!' Whereat Quiven shrugged her pretty golden shoulders and replied, "'Why deceive you, though you are so stupid that it is very easy?' Who brought you the note from Arkilu the night of your arrival here?" "'You did,' Cabot answered. "'Why didn't I put two and two together before?' "'Then you are connected in some way with Arkilu?' She laughed contemptuously. "'How did you not guess it?' she taunted. "'Yes, one would rather say I am connected in some way with Arkilu, for I am her sister set here to spy on you by connivance with the chief woman of Judd's servants, who is an old nurse of ours. I am Quiven the Golden Flame, daughter of Theof the Grim, and it is from me that he learned of your mystic abilities. What do you think of that, beast?" "'I think,' Miles said noncommittally, "'that, although you truly are a golden flame, you ought to have been named Quiven the Pepper-Pot.' 
whereat she suddenly burst into tears and rushed out of the room. "'Funny girl,' Miles commented to himself as he laid aside the list prepared for his prospecting trip and set about the concoction of some stage properties for his forthcoming command performance before the King. It was a sulky Quibben who served his meal that evening, so much so that Cabot playfully accused her of putting poison in his stew. This did not render her any more gracious, however. "'If I did not love my sister very much,' she asserted, "'I would not stand for you one moment.' The rest of the meal was eaten in silence during which Cabot had an idea. So when the food had been cleared away he asked the aureate maiden, "'Can you smuggle a note to your sister for me?' "'Yes,' she assented gloomily, "'and I shall tell her how you are treating me.' At which he could not refrain from remarking, "'Do you know, Quiven, I believe that you are falling in love with me?' "'You beast!' she cried at him. Oh, I hate you! I hate you! I hate you!" And she turned her face to the wall. "'Come, come,' said Cabot soothingly. "'I don't mean to tease you, and we must both think of your sister.' The note. How long will it take you to deliver it and return? "'Shall I hurry?' she asked guardedly. "'Yes. Then it will take me less than one-twelfth of a day.' That would be quite sufficient for his plans. Accordingly, he wrote, Arkilu the Beautiful, send word how I can see you after the performance, but beware of Judd. Cabot the Magician. This note he folded up, placed it in the palm of Quiven, and closed her golden fingers over it. Whereat she sprang back with, Don't you dare touch me like that! and rushed out of the house, sobbing angrily. Really, he must be more careful with this delicate creature. For although her intense hatred furnished him considerable amusement, yet it was possible to go too far. He must at least be polite to the sister of his benefactress. But there was no time to be given over to worrying about Quiven's sensitive feelings, for the note had been sent merely to give him a slight respite from her prying eyes, in order that he might sneak out for a conference with Judd. Of course he had no intention of any secret tryst with Arkilu. Heaven forbid, when he loved his own distant Lilla so intensely. So he hurried to the quarters of the Verginian noble, who received him gladly, being most interested in learning whether there was any rational explanation to be given to the various magic tricks of the evening before. But Miles blocked his inquisitiveness by the flat assertion that all were due to mystic spells and talismans alone and then got rapidly down to business, for there was no time to be lost. Miles told Judd of the note from Theof the Grim requiring his presence at the royal palace, and how he suspected that Princess Arkilu was responsible. Also, he related his discovery that his maidservant was Quiven the Golden Flame. But he had the decency to refrain from implicating the head of Judd's menage. I shall have her removed at once," the Ver-King asserted. No, no, Miles hastily interposed. That would never do. For now that we know she is a spy, it will be easy to outwit her. But a new one we never could be sure of. Then he told how he had gotten rid of Quiven for the evening by sending her with a note to Arkilu. Judd's brow darkened. 
But, Miles insisted, that note will serve a threefold purpose. First, it has enabled me undetected to pay this visit to you. Secondly, it will allay Arkelu's suspicions. And thirdly, it will stir you to block my appearance before Theof tomorrow. Oh, I would have done that anyhow, Judd insisted. My plans are all made. I shall send a runner to Theof and warn him to search Arkelu's room for your note. When he finds the note, he will certainly cancel the arrangements for your performance. Thus the note will serve a fourth purpose. Return now to your quarters, and I will send you word of the outcome." "'I wouldn't if I were you,' Miles admonished. "'For a message from you would reveal to our fair young spy the fact of my secret interview with you this evening. Let Theof himself send the word.' "'So be it. You may count on starting on your expedition tomorrow as planned. Good luck to you.' "'Good luck to you, Judd the Great and may you win Arkelu the Beautiful." So the Earthman hastened back to his quarters, where Quiven, on her return, found him placidly reclining on a divan. For a few minutes they chatted playfully together, and then she suddenly narrowed her eyelids, looked at him with a peculiar expression, and asked, "'Aren't you the least bit anxious to know what answer Arkelu made to your note?' That was so. He had written Arkelu a note, but now that it had served its purpose he had completely forgotten about it. How could he square himself with little Quiven? By flattery? "'Of course I'm anxious to know,' he asserted, "'but I was so glad to have you come back again that for the moment I neglected to ask you.' Quiven the golden flame pouted. "'Now you're teasing me again,' she said, "'and I won't stand for it.' But I really want to know," he continued with mock eagerness. Please do tell me about your sister. I gave her the note. Just then there came a loud pounding on the gate outside, so loud, in fact, that the sound penetrated within the house. Quiven stopped talking. She and Miles listened intently. The pounding continued. Evidently we are to have company this evening he remarked, glad to change the subject. Quiven replied, "'Such a racket at this time of night can mean naught but ill. Let us approach the gate with care and question the intruders.' So saying, she took down one of the hanging stone lamps and opened the outside door. It was a typical dark, silent, fragrant Peruvian evening, except for the fact that the darkness was broken by the glare of the torches beyond the wall and that the silence was broken by the pounding on the gate, and that the fragrance was marred by the smoke of Quiven's lamp. "'Who is there?' Quiven called. To this there came back the peremptory shout, "'Open quickly, in the name of Theof the Grim!' The golden girl recoiled. Even Cabot himself shuddered as he realized the evident cause of the disturbance. His plot with Judd had produced results beyond what they had planned and Theof, upon seizing the note, had decided not merely to cancel the sleight-of-hand performance, but also to place his daughter's supposed sweetheart under arrest. "'I am afraid your father has intercepted my letter to your sister,' Cabot explained. "'I tell you what. You leave by the rear door, make your way quickly to Arkelu, and see if the two of you can intercede for me with your stern parent.' 
So saying, he released her. The slim princess handed him the light and sped into the interior of the house. "'Cease your noise!' he shouted. "'For I, Miles Cabot the Minorian, come to unbar the gate in person!' He strode down the path. Quickly he slid the huge wooden bolts, swung the gate open, and stepped outside, shielding the lamp with one hand to get a view of the disturbers. But his lamp was instantly dashed from him and his arms were bound behind him. His captors were about a dozen Verking soldiers in leather tunics and helmets, some carrying wooden spears and some holding torches, while their evident leader was similarly clothed but armed with a sharp wooden rapier. As soon as the prisoner was securely bound, the guard hustled him roughly off down the street. Thus were his plans rudely dashed to the ground. On the preceding night all had been arranged for his trip to secure elements for the construction of a radio-set with which to communicate with Cuppia and his Lilla. That morning he had been forced to postpone his trip, in order to perform before Theof the Grim. And this evening he was Theof's prisoner, slated for what? End of chapter 8